0: You're listening to the Harvard Religion Beat, and my name is Paul Gillis-Smith, a correspondent for the Divinity School. I'm standing here in Marsh Chapel at Boston University, where 60 years ago on Good Friday, a famous experiment took place conducted by a Harvard Divinity School student, where he tried to answer the simple question, do psychedelic drugs occasion mystical experiences? And standing here in the room where it happened, I'm feeling connected to the long history of these psychoactive plants and chemicals, weaving together ancient and contemporary indigenous spiritual traditions, so called countercultural movements, and psychological research. Now, in 2022, conversations about the connections between psychedelics and spirituality are again top of mind at Harvard Divinity School and beyond. In this episode, we're going to trace these historical lines from here at Marsh Chapel in 1962 to the present moment of psychedelic spirituality, and to see what role psychedelics might play in the future of religion. Now, psychedelic research at Harvard was on the tail end of what we might call the first act of academic engagements with these plants and chemicals. This is not a new story. Media projects have proliferated on these fateful early 60s culminating with the removal of psychologists Timothy Leary and Richard Alpert from Harvard and their respective quests as gurus on the American spiritual scene. But where we will arrive, hopefully, is a sense of continuity to the present and that the Marsh Chapel experiment was but one moment in a long history and an open future for psychedelics and religion. The story of psychedelics, an academic study that eventually brought them to Harvard, is parallel and tied to colonial projects. From the first chemical synthesis of a psychoactive plant, the peyote cactus, that is sacred to many indigenous communities in Mexico and the U.S., to the banking exec turned spiritual seeker Gordon Wasson publishing a sensationalizing story in Life magazine on his trip to Mexico to find psychoactive mushrooms, these histories read like so many accounts of rationalistic science pillaging indigenous people and their traditions to rejuvenate the clinical gaze of modernity. Now, while psychedelic research at Harvard in the 60s had its problematic moments, often carrying Orientalist valences, Richard Alpert and Timothy Leary put psychedelics into honest conversation with religion and religious practice. In April of 1962, Leary and Alpert assisted a PhD student at Harvard Divinity School in his project of assessing whether psychedelic drugs occasion mystical experiences. Here's Dr. Christian Greer, a postdoctoral fellow at Harvard's Center for the Study of World Religion and scholar of religion and psychedelic culture on Leary and how the Marsh Chapel experiment came together.
1: His experiment would involve, he initially wanted 30, but Leary's like, okay, if we're going to do this, it's got to be 20. So Walter Payne says 20, fine. 20 volunteers set into two groups, double blind study. Half will be given psilocybin, I believe it's 30 milligrams, Hmm. and the other half Will be given a placebo, niacin, which causes a tingling and warmness. And so there they go. So you know um, they have a they meet together here, and then they drive over across the Charles to Marsh Chapel, go into a little room below the chapel, and Walter Penke knows what he's doing. Who's up there preaching? Howard Thurman, hmm. M. Mm-hmm. L.K.'s mentor. You know, on Good Friday, this is really an effective set and setting. This is really, you know, Martin Luther King's mentor, a a truly accomplished orator, is going to be giving uh, the sermon. And yeah, the result, of course, is uh, somewhat famous. It's now gone into history as the miracle at Marsh Chapel, but in a nutshell, the people who did have the psilocybin reported incredible theological experiences. Not Always uh, very pleasant. In fact, some of them had extremely difficult times, which Leary glossed (laughs) in his reporting.
0: Now, Walter Pinky, the PhD student, did not gloss the one research subject who received psilocybin and did not have a mystical experience. And in his dissertation, Pinky writes that the subject experienced what he called a psychotic encounter. But the line, of course, between the psychotic and the mystical is not always so clear. So Christian, what do you see as the significance of the Marsh Chapel experiment conducted by Walter Pankey 60 years ago, both for the study of mysticism and the study of psychedelic culture?
1: Well, I think the significance can be read on a few different levels. On one level, it was a media sensation. All the Boston newspapers picked it up. Drugs reported to induce mystical experience. And allegedly it was proven by a Harvard scientists and a group of Harvard and MIT intellectuals. Wow, Mm -hmm. really a a provocative news item. But more importantly, I think those who are already involved in this type of experimentation, um, it confirmed to them what they had already knew, which was that we're dealing here not with a substance that can be understood or bounded by mechanistic reasoning. Now we are approaching the world of religious insight and mystical illumination and so from here on out the discourse that would be shaped around this in fact the discourse that leary played a great uh, very important role shaping would be a religious discourse about Mm. these substances for leary were sacramental Mm -hmm. effective sacraments and then of course the conversation quickly turned to wait a minute if we have these sacraments are the churches obsolete is this the religion of the future all of a sudden there is no middleman between me and ultimate reality, me and God, me and Allah, whatever. It, does this make all religion obsolete? Well, that would be a very popular discourse following after the Marsh Chapel experiment. The miracle at Marsh Chapel, I think the language really tells you when was the last time you heard of a miracle, you know? <laughs> and this one happened right across the river and was available to you as well, right. um, if you were around at that time. Uh, in fact, w- another part of this story is that a small psychedelic Revival followed uh, once those findings were published, because keep in mind once more that at this time um, you could still purchase peyote through the mail, Uh, psilocybin was available to physicians willing to write to Sandoz, LSD was around, and so there was uh, enthusiasm and it really burnt over Harvard Square and apparently by 1965, uh, there were acid dealers you know, Harvard Square was lousy with them because Leary established a foothold. Uh, he had a little storefront after he, uh, he left Harvard uh, called the IFIF, the If If. And that was right in Harvard Square, um, run by Lisa Bieberman, a forgotten figure, someone who we've talked about. Forgotten figure in the psychedelic movement but deserves to be rediscovered.
0: And closing the chapter of historical research and looking to the present, Christian and I spoke about what is being called the psychedelic renaissance or the revisiting of psychoactive chemicals for their medical applications in the aftermath of the war on drugs and their federal prohibition. I asked Christian what he saw religious practitioners having to offer this moment of renewed interest in psychedelics for medical uses, and like any good professor, he turned the question question back on me.
1: What do you think,
0: in studies that have strictly sort of psychological or neurological Ends in mind, whether it's uh, tobacco use cessation, um, or PTSD treatment, or depression treatment. Um, in many of these cases, the researchers will report, "Oh, these our patients, our research subjects are having these uh, encounters with God. They say they're, you know, hallucinating otherworldly beings, having these so-called mystical encounters." And they have also found that those mystical encounters at high doses are typically also correlated with greater um, efficacy of the treatments that they're looking to, that they're looking to study. So more people are having mystical experiences, also more likely that they'll be, you know, off, um, off tobacco for a longer time or like their, their symptoms of PTSD have, have been resolved. Um, But these medical doctors don't have training in the study of religion. They don't have the tools to sort of understand what the relationship between the self and the mystical experience is, and what role that mystical experience is playing towards the psychiatric ends that they're interested in. And so I think a more serious study taking into account religious perspectives, either from where... These plants came from, like psilocybin. Who were, who, where did, where did we get psilocybin from? Where are these, where are these mushrooms growing before they entered the Western medical space? Or other religious practitioners who have taken a serious interest in mystical experiences as occasioned by the use of psychoactive plants and chemicals. The serious study of what the relationship between the, that individual and their, their mysticism is and what role that's playing towards a psychiatric end. Because if medical doctors are talking people through religious experiences, that's like um, a
1: religious expert talking th- someone through a medical experience.
0: Right, yeah. <laughs> or your priest telling you how to change the oil on your car. Mm-hmm. I think new forms of expertise alongside scientific expertise is so important, particularly. When people are encountering otherworldly entities, yeah, I could not have said it better myself. I mean, that's
1: precisely the right answer. And you know just one thing I've noticed in the scholarly literature and one thing that you know I've raised this flag before, but the way in which mystical experiences are often presumed to be positive
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This, yeah.
1: is, this is not the case if you look through the historical record the um and, and I think, though, that at its best, this particular moment in the psychedelic renaissance will be generative. It will create new opportunities. It will open up spaces where indigenous peoples can actually share what they know as a result of their ancient traditions mm-hmm. about these substances in a way that isn't tokenizing. Yeah. But Western science can be instructed. And there's so much to learn. And, and really, this is an opportunity to, I think, rectify so much of the injustice Definitely. that has been done. Uh, particularly with respect to these substances. I mean if if you look at just magic mushrooms themselves, psilocybin itself, the colonial history, it's un it's 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 unconsciousable. And yeah, you know, I think rectifying that will take a serious engagement with not only the damage done, but also looking to the future and the ways in which uh these substances can be integrated with a respectful attitude towards the traditions that have cultivated their use two thousands of years.
0: Absolutely, yeah. So we've talked a little bit about the contemporary use of psychedelics in psychiatric research. What role are psychoactive chemicals and plants playing in religion in the present?
1: Well, I think at this point it's difficult to find a religious tradition where that, that whose members are not somehow using psychedelics. Mm. I mean, it seems to be uh, it seems to have saturated almost every tradition I can think of, and I'm interacting. Um, quite regularly with psychedelic Episcopal, Episcopalian people, psychedelic Catholic people. Uh, There seems to be a true overlap with American Buddhism and psychedelics. That is a profound overlap. Um, And there's a great book on that. Uh, It's called Altered States by, um, I think his name is Oslo. Oslo.
0: Oh, is it Richard Austo? Austo, yeah. Austo, I, think I that's can't it. remember his first name, yeah.
1: Um, but no, I mean, it's difficult to find uh, traditions where psychedelics aren't playing a role. And what that means is it's a, again, it's a it's a call to the people in those traditions to bring them into the fold. Either they can bring them into the fold or they can leave them in the cold. Yeah. And it's a theological question that I'm really excited to see it unfold because, you know, what would it mean to open up the Roman Catholic Church to psychedelic sacraments. This is Brian Morescu's work. Mm -hmm. Very provocative, very provocative. And what would that look like across the board? So here I'm thinking of, um, for example, some religions have already done it. Uh, There are a number of different strains of paganism that really are quite enthusiastic about the use of psychedelic substances. It's it's part of the liturgy. They're happy to do it. Uh, that's pretty fascinating. And then you could look at some religions that never let it go. Here I'm thinking of um, when I was in Varanasi, and I was able to witness and participate in um, worship of Shiva by drinking Bang Lassi. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you have traditions uh, that have retained a focus on psychoactive substances. That, to me, is is very... It's an interesting historical dimension that not only are there religions that could bring people in and th- and, and really unpack a lot of the interesting theological questions of why they were left out in the first place, because I think what you might find are sociopolitical agendas influencing theological agendas, um, but also really valorizing the religions that never let them go. And here I'm thinking of the ayahuasca group, Santo Daime and UVD, uh, which are in- becoming increasingly popular because we have you know, as uh, as anyone who knows who's studying religion, the decline of religion in the United States in some ways, but the rise of spiritual but not religious. Right. I, I, I can't even say the decline of religion. I should just say the rise of spiritual but not religious. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what's clear is that there's a culture of seekership. And a lot of these seekers are created because the institu- the religious institutions in which they were raised were not providing them with the nourishment or they felt as though that the, these institutions were not providing them with the nourishment they needed. And so they went out and became seekers. And in, bu- in so doing, they're attempting to find meaning that was not supplied to them. So, And that meaning will be provided to them. They will find it. Yeah. And, I mean, what do you think? This is some—I think I, I always enjoy my conversations with you because I know you have a religious affiliation, and I know that this is a question that
0: you've wrestled with. Have you come to any— Conclusions? or Are you still thinking through it? Yeah, so you're teaching a class this term on the global history of psychedelic spirituality, and we went down a rabbit hole on an alternate term for psychedelics, entheogen, meaning uh, generating or becoming the divine within. And that that was the first published paper in 1979 to specifically designate um, the religious use of psychoactive plants and chemicals with this term entheogen. And then there was a response from a student at HDS 16 years later uh, in 1995 saying, okay, if we're going to call them entheogens, and it's this critical element of the practice of religious today is using entheogens, then we need um, entheology or entheologies, uh, theology of the mystical experience occasioned by the religious use of psychedelics. Uh, which this would be an interreligious theology and non religious, perhaps in some cases, perhaps similar to Leary as a naturalistic understanding of religious experience. And so, yeah, I think it, there's a lot of possibility there for new ways of coming to understand mysticism that do not necessarily rest in the hands of hegemonic uh, religious understandings.
1: Oh, yeah, that um, makes sense, totally. And, you know, one avenue I see taken here are people within traditions. Putting on their historian hat, going through the record, mm-hmm. looking for moments where there was an entheogenic element to their religion. Oh yeah. And trying to revitalize that and saying we can take we don't, on the heresy. Yeah, we could we we could absorb this. This has always been part of our tradition and we're just rediscovering it. And this is when you look at religion as a wellspring of imagination and creativity and 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 further innovation. Uh, that to me is super exciting. Uh, I I find that type of research fascinating and that type of theology fascinating uh, as you go between uh, different traditions. And so I'm looking forward to seeing much, much more of it.
0: So to bring things to a close here, we talked a little bit about how the present state of the interaction between religion and psychedelics exists within longstanding traditions. These are not new movements, although there are plenty of those newer movements built around the sacramental use of psychedelics.
1: That's the... I think the thesis behind this class I'm teaching, Global Psychedelic Spiritualities, is mm-hmm. we began in prehistory and have been moving across time and space looking at different geographical reasons, you know, the Indian subcontinent. So we're looking at the role of Soma in the Vedas. Mm-hmm. And we moved over to ancient Rome and looked at the Kakeon in the, Eleusis, the Eleusinian Mysteries. And then we moved over to the Amazon, and we looked at early Christianity. And and I think that, yeah, that, that's why I was saying that it's such an exciting thing. You can really throw a dart at yeah. a map and then spin a, a wheel with time, with m- centuries on it. And I think it'd be hard pressed to find uh, any time and place without some form of um, alteration of consciousness. And here, let me just oh, yeah. also mention that, you know, psychoactive substances are by no means the most, the only way that uh, you can find a mystical tradition with any uh, religion in particular. Uh, you know, psychedelics are just one means for attaining the alteration of consciousness that deserve to be set aside. Uh, flagellation, sensory deprivation, fasting, dancing, uh, you name it, there's any number of ways to induce these particular states. Yeah. And, and I always like to clarify, psychedelics don't cause, in my opinion, mystical experiences. There's not a direct correlation. And I'm taking a page from Aldous Huxley here, Doors of Perception. Psychedelics occasion mystical experiences. And now, what's the difference? The difference is this is something that is innate to all humans
0: mm-hmm.
1: and can be activated through any number of techniques. It just so happens that psychedelics seem to be more reliable, if I can use that term yeah. when it comes to the activation of these states but it by no means causes them it right. is merely an occasioning and that occasioning can occur through any number of different techniques i just want to clarify it's a kind of a nitpicky point but oh yeah no, absolutely
0: one. yeah into the future i'm curious if you as an historian looking in the other direction <laughs> you're are you are you expecting any um patterns to repeat or any relays that we are that we may see come up again Hmm. in in the future of religion before I answer anything you got I mean is there anything that you see that's really juicy or rich that I mean I am imagining entheogenic temples at some point yeah um certainly have already arrived in the Netherlands um I think it's called synthesis I believe is the name of one it's a wellness center yeah yeah and I'm thinking something along the lines of um there's an enormous um evangelical church in orange county in california called saddleback and as part of its operation they have various culturally specific worship services services yeah all occurring at the same time Wow! so you have a sort of gospel praise you have the sort of traditional or the like uh, contemporary christian rock sort of situation um and many many others sort of happening all at the same time i imagine with if Trends of commodification continue. Something similar for psychedelic practice, with given certain laws change. Wow. Um,
1: How imaginative. I mean, in my mind's eye, I just can't help but envision what these would look like. It's so weird. It sounds like science fiction. Oh, but yeah. in fact, like all good science fiction, it's about the present. Mm-hmm. And these temples already exist, they, and they have existed for the last, I mean, I'm just, I'm thinking as a historian of post-war American counterculture. Um, for example, Burning Man is an annual pilgrimage that is often, the, the climax is often um, a mega psychedelic experience when the man burns. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm also thinking of, you know, the array of psychedelic enclaves that have been operating somewhat clandestinely since the 1960s. Um, for example, Goa in India is one of these psychedelic enclaves that has been operating full capacity, oh yeah, full every full moon you know uh, you could go out there and have a great time. There's also uh, some beaches in cosesemui, and of course, there are uh, psychedelic
0: enclaves throughout Australia, watla de Menez in Mexico, I think continues to be where um m- mushrooms in- came to the u s from
1: yeah and and you know I see what you're saying, I see the commodification happening, I see wellness centers developing for the elite, I see retreat centers opening uh, for a variety of different people with a variety of different agendas, and in those centers I see great hope for addressing what seems to be an epidemic of mental anguish
0: Mm -hmm.
1: wrought by COVID-19 and the increasing militarization of Eastern Europe, Uh, so many Uh, structural racism, so many uh, emotional pain, so much emotional pain in the modern world can be addressed. And it will be addressed, hopefully, by the widespread availability of these substances. But I also see a major... I I also see the possibility for great harm. Mm -hmm. And that harm could come in any number of flavors. It could come from abuse within these particular psychedelic circles, whether they're temples or wellness centers or retreats. Um, I also see a type of regulation where access to these substances is determined by um, certain is is controlled by certain companies that yeah. have uh, copywritten these molecules and make them inaccessible. I also see, um, you know, and fear uh, the possibility that ancient cultures could be stamped out and their their access limited. Yeah. Um. By virtue of you know patents and Terminator seeds and that whole thing, so you know, th- there's a lot to be hopeful for, a lot to worry about. It's an exciting time to be alive. You know yeah. what can I say? <laughs> um. On, on a very individual level, what what I hope in, what I hope to see in my own life, of course, is a um, you know what's the old expression? The protection of all beings, lessening of suffering, um, and maybe this is going to sound like super hokey, but maybe a strengthening of the bonds of intimacy in my own life just on a personal level. Mm-hmm. My friends, uh, my partner, uh, yeah, my family. You know, boy, I'll take anything I can get. Any any tool that I could use to strengthen the intimacy and love that we share, I I, I would consider that an immense boon. And so, uh, yeah, that's what I'd like to see. People tending their own gardens and Absolutely. using them for love and kindness at the risk of sounding like an airheaded hippie. <laughs>
0: I cannot imagine a better way to end this conversation on the past and future of psychedelics and religion. Thanks so much, Christian. Paul, always a pleasure. Thank you for tuning in to this special episode of the Harvard Religion Beat, which was written, hosted, and produced by HDS student Paul Gillis-Smith. And thanks again to Dr. J. Christian Greer for his insight into psychedelics and their historical and contemporary connection to religious experience. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing to The Religion Beat, or check out our other episodes. Until next time.